Welcome back to another episode of Whiteness in America podcast. My name is Tom Bell. I'm joined by my new co-host, Joshua Trinidad. Hey, Josh. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Good, man. How are you? Good. Doing well. Doing well. Yeah? Are you excited about uh, today's episode? Yes. I'm so pumped. Um, you know, just uh, checking out uh, Dr. Kapleta's work um, and just... You know, just knowing his his not only knowing his work but hearing him all over all over the place. Um, this is going to be real exciting. Yeah, today today we interviewed Dr. Nolan Cabrera from the University of Arizona. He's an associate professor there and author of the book White Guys on Campus. Uh, we're really excited to have him today on the show, and uh, we talk about a myriad of things from restructuring and reforming higher education to centering social justice, uh, his uh, impacts with an, an intersection of music, his uh, New website that just came out, chicanostocracy.com, and then uh, we talk a little bit about his vision for the future. So it's a really great episode on, on a week where we're just getting dismal, dismal news about you know, increased COVID numbers. It looks like um, police, police, uh, police legislation in the federal government is stalling out. So uh, there's a lot of things going on. Trump is doing. <laughs> <laughs> a rally at Mount Rushmore. Like, what's more white, like, ex- exposition of whiteness than a, a, a rally at a site that was Lakota tribe land with a big, you know, like, carved into space, you know, that has a, a significant meaning for Lakota Lakota folks. And, um, yeah, it's just uh, lots going on. So, so this interview for me personally was an uplifting – I mean, we talked about heavy stuff, but it was very, like, a good talk, so – yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really excited for folks to hear it. So, yeah. Without further ado, I guess we should probably jump to the interview, yeah? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So, uh, Dr. Cabrera, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me, both of you. I appreciate it. So I have an awkward slash funny story. Maybe it's only funny to me. Two years ago, um, when I started dreaming up this idea of hosting a podcast to talk about whiteness and white supremacy, Christina, my partner, looked at me and said, what is the purpose? And I was like, I don't know. We're going to talk about how we can dismantle and disrupt and change and you know, educate folks. And she's like, well, who are you going to interview? And the first person I thought of was you. And oh, so, like, good. I made a list. She had me write up a list, and at the top of the list is your name. And then, like, there were some other people, and I was like, if I could just get Nolan Cabrera on my show, that'd be great. So now I'm done. Like, after this, we're going to shut it down. Josh just joined, and, and this is it. No, just kidding. Yeah, so <laughs> uh, your, work, your work has been pretty influential for me personally, so this is kind of a moment. I told Josh I might be gushing a little too much because it's both Hamilton Day and Nolan Cabrera Interview Day in my house, so... <laughs> my my emotions are all over the place. So, oh, that's 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 really it's it's really sweet that that you say that because you never know if you put something out into the universe if anybody's going to pick it up. If it you know, and I've done that. I've I've written things that literally three people have written, and one of them was my dad. You know, it's just like <laughs> you know, and so the the fact that you know, you know that the the, the some of the work means something to you that that means it, it it makes it worth it and i really appreciate it yeah well thank you so much and um you know for me personally it was a white guy 
who's read your material, processing that, you know, and also as a scholar who's trying to enact work that challenges and disrupts white supremacy, like, I think it's very influential on both those levels. So that's really cool. So what have you been up to, man? Like, we have got COVID happening, massive racism showing its, rearing its face everywhere um, yes. in a very visible space. Um, you said it's 104 degrees in Arizona today, so that's awesome. So, mm-hmm. yeah, how's life? <laughs> Actually, life is really good. Like, I, I, I say it, should, it, it, it shouldn't be, and I, and I, I have a little bit of um, kind, of, kind of survivor's guilt around that, because I know a lot of people around me are really suffering and having difficulties, and and it's still difficult. Don't get me wrong. And I'm, you know, I am going stir crazy in the house. But you know, the, to 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 still be employed, to be able to continue writing, um, you know, I, I, continue to to do different work. Right now, we're doing an entire overhaul of the general education curricula at uh, at the U of A, and you know, just a little thing like that, you know, and and it's crazy. Like we're actually because of the movement of Black Lives Matters and all the attention on race and racial inequality, that people are making headway in general ed around diversity where it's not just kind of this one-off like, oh yeah, you know, let's look at, you know, Hispanic demography, that's ethnic studies, that's the, no, like they're, they're really centering issues of marginalization, power, privilege, et cetera. And I'm like, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. You know, in a, in a good way, and uh, yeah, and then you know, and then all, all the while on the side, I'm still working on book number two. So just trying to, you know, keep in the habit of of of, of writing and doing all that good stuff. So book number oh, two. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a little little thing like that. It's the it's nice. document it's documenting the. Uh, um, the, the, the racial politics around the banning of Mexican-American studies in Tucson, and then the subsequent trial that was that found the ban to be unconstitutional. So, you know. A small project. Just a, little, just a little thing like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yes. I wonder with general ed stuff, um, you know, because we're, we're in the process of doing similar work on our campus, and, you know, we just instituted uh, for the first time ever, which is, blows my mind on on, a, on an urban space, an urban campus in Flint, Michigan, we never had a, a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee, right? We've had mm-hmm. diversity councils, um, but they didn't really have a lot of traction behind them. And we've had some groups that have worked, but nothing has been umbrella organized. And so one of the things that we're starting to think about is, and I've always been curious about this, institutions of higher ed have often said, we believe in social justice, or they have something in their mission but they never measure it anywhere. They never actually see if they're making an impact. And I wonder if through these general ed reforms that you're talking about and that we're seeing too, if we can start to find a way to see if we're actually having some sort of common impact on, on shaping folks' perspectives and the way that they look at power and minoritization and marginalization and things like that. Um, yeah, that's, and, and that, that's, that's the million dollar question right there. And that's why, so, you know, um, and, and, and I think it's also one of those issues that part of the reason why it's been so difficult to uh, to measure that is that you don't have uniform offerings. And I don't mean uniform like you have the same class that everybody takes, you know, like, you know, everybody reads, you know, whatever, you know, 
a book by Ibram X. Kendi, and we all discuss it. I'm saying that, you know, like in our review of what constituted a diversity requirement before, you had some amazing, amazing classes that would center uh, marginalization, privilege, um, historically, contemporarily. They, they also tended to be out of the areas of like American Indian studies, Africana studies, you know, I mean, I know that's shocking, but you know, they tended to do them right. But then because of the way that the university is structured, um, everybody and their mother tries to get general ed because you know, the more students you get, the more money you, your college gets. And so we had, we had classes like werewolves and zombies in Russia, or like, you know, Japanese popular culture counting as a diversity requirement. And I'm not trying to crap on that as an area of study. It's valuable and it provides context and nuance to a student's uh, undergraduate experience. But that it's, it, 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 to have all that merged under one umbrella is just not appropriate because it, it completely diminishes the purpose of having a diversity requirement, you know, and so, uh, I think that the more that we can have sort of some philosophical underpinnings of uh, what constitutes a, a really meaningful diversity course, and also what doesn't, we need to be clear about that, that we can get to these areas where we can actually assess it mm -hmm. on a more level. Because, you know, we need to be clear about that. You can't just, you know, throw a group of scholars of color together and say, oh, that's, that's you know, that's a diversity course requirement. Um, and I also know that, that, especially for probably the audience of your podcast, some folks are cringing when I say, you know, diversity requirement um, because of the way that that's so been watered down over the course of the time. And for me, also part of this is a reclamation project of trying to really come back and say, well, well, maybe reclamation is the wrong word, but kind of Trojan horse in that like Under the guise of, oh yeah, we, we all value diversity then adding that critical lens to it and through the definitional components really saying this is what we should be talking about when it, when it comes to diversity. I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because I think that terms, in the same way that these terms can be corrupted and watered down, they can also be used and leveraged in really productive ways as well. Um, and that's the constant negotiation of, 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 of language and the social construction of meaning in the process. Yeah, probably similar to Crenshaw's concept and theorization of intersectionality. It's been used and changed and modified to meet very different reasons and very different understandings. But yet, the the true indication of what she was trying to accomplish with that 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 word and, and the description of it is super important to this conversation in general. So yeah, I, I hear that. Absolutely. And, and oh my God, if I had a nickel for every time. I hear, especially in student affairs, you know, and I don't, these are well-meaning people. I'm not trying to, they do a lot of tough work, but they'll say, you know, oh, you know, you're white and you're male and cisgender, intersectionality. And and it's like, no, that's not, that, that, that is not the concept we're talking about here. Like, it's not just a description of difference, but it's mutually reinforcing spheres of oppression and how they play out. Uh, is complementary and sometimes contradictory ways within individual bodies and how they recreate social oppression in the process. What do you think? Uh, what do you think should should exist for for professors and staff in higher ed? What what urgency should we put in place for them in order to grapple with the same same requirements we're asking our students to do? 
Uh, absolutely. So I, I think within institutions of higher ed, um, you know, that uh, I, I loved I love the, 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 this term that my, my uh, former department head, Gary Rhodes, says all the time. And that is that everything is negotiable. That we have these different metrics of what constitutes excellence, excellence in teaching, excellence in scholarship, what you should, you know, and you, you have it all laid out there in terms of your job requirements and what you should be doing, right? And so one of the core questions we have to keep asking ourselves is, you have these institutionalized um, uh, pressures to push people in certain directions, right? You're, you're at a research one institution. Yeah, they say 40, 40, 20 of your uh, teaching research and service. But in reality, at a research one, you're gonna be doing like, you know, 60, 20, 20, or actually maybe, you know, 60, 30, that little, anyway, you know, just to say, it. yeah, exactly. Um, but what if we started yeah, and this is where creative imagination has to really, really come in. You know, what if you start meaningfully ingraining diversity as part of the reward structure, right? That you will be evaluated. You as a dean will be evaluated. You as a provost will be evaluated. You as a faculty member will be evaluated on how many students of color that you support and have seen through your program. Um, the the number uh, you know the, the 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 composition of gender in your research team um, you know and basically saying I love the way that um, in, uh, Tuck and Yang talked about this in the beginning of the book towards what justice where they said they made a powerful powerful argument to it and I'm, I apologize that I don't have the direct quote in front of me so I'm gonna butcher it bear with me. But they no worries. I do that all the time. <laughs> but shout out, get that book, read it, love it. It's it's phenomenal. But they argue that social justice isn't some sort of you know boutique component um, on the side of education. It's the center of it. That is that there is no meaningful education in the absence of social justice. That's you know that's what it should be. And so. From that, we start extrapolating and saying, okay, well, what would a rewards structure look like that centered social justice? And that's why we have to be creatively imaginative because it, I've never really meaningfully seen that exist. But just because it's never existed doesn't mean it can't be there. And then from that, what ends up happening is that instead of diversity being the task of your chief diversity officer or all of it being burdened on on faculty of color to, to, to take on the, the uh, mentoring responsibilities that uh, of, of, of students of color, et cetera, that the, the, the workload gets more evenly distributed throughout uh, because it's ingrained. It says, no, this is what we as Wildcats, we as whatever your group is, this is what we do. Now, have I ever seen it manifest? Absolutely not. But it doesn't mean we can't do it. And the other thing that we have to do is actually provide resources behind it. And there's so many creative ways that you can do this. So like, for example, um, uh, you know, you, there, are, there are models where you can have, like let's say you have a core group of faculty who are excellent trainers in issues of diversity, broadly speaking. You know, 
So you have someone who's really good about curricular diversity and somebody who's really good at creating pedagogically inclusive classroom spaces. There's some people who are experts in, uh, uh, you know, in, in LGBTQIA issues. There's some people who are really uh, good at racial ethnic issues and, and as they pertain across the board. Well, what do you do? Create a collection of these folk and basically the same way that you would an attorney, put them on retainer. And so it's over, you know, we're over in the law school and we really need some help trying to structure diversity. Well, the provost office has these, this group on retainer so that you can actually work with and develop diversity strategies so that A, there are resources available, B, you're leveraging the resources of your institution, and C, and most importantly, you're compensating these folk for doing trainings at your university and leveraging their expertise in that way. And so you're not just taking it for granted and saying, oh, it's another part of your service that you're doing. So that's what I'm saying is like, there are creative ways of doing this, you know? You could, there's even, there's been some models about um, where you have basically a diversity auditor who sits on, uh, on search committees so that from start to finish that there's somebody there who's checking and making sure did we reach out in areas that will actually bring a diverse applicant pool in? Is there, uh, uh, did we actually successfully bring these folks around? Did we take account of, you know, like, are we only recruiting from Harvard, Stanford, and MIT and only ending up with a white male group, or are we actually doing this in a meaningful way? And then at the end of the day, and this is where it takes a lot of, of intestinal fortitude, at the end of the day, you have to have a provost who will say, unless you abide by the, you know, unless they give the okay, unless the diversity auditor gives the okay, I'm not going to approve this line. I'm not going to approve this hire. You know, and that way it becomes ingrained throughout a structure. Again, you have to be able to compensate people for it. It's a hell of an ask. But what it actually ends up doing is it ends up flipping everything on its head. It says there is concentrated knowledge, talent, and expertise within certain communities going to this end that we want. And in order to, we need to value that in the same way that like if, if I was an engineering professor, it would be asinine to think that I would be consulting without getting compensated for it. Well, you know what, you have experts in other areas that you're saying these are valuable. Well, put your money where your mouth is. You want to support these folk, or you want that you want this as a value? Find the money to be able to support them in this way, and say, no, we value what you're doing, we value what you can offer, and we value it to the extent that we're going to compensate you for it. And and again, I'm just kind of spitballing right now, but the point is that it's wide open. The core issue is if you value social justice, how does it show up in your institutional structures? How does it show up in your reward structures? And how, it, you know, and basically you have sticks and carrots that should be associated with so, you know, social justice and equity largely defined. So it's, it's everywhere, it's constant, but it takes a lot of imagination because it's, you know, the, the whole thing, we'll hire a chief diversity officer and all of our problems will be gone. That folds in on itself really quickly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and you brought up a really good point in that, in that, uh, you know, a lot of institutions will say we provide resources. And I hear that phrase so often that there are resources available, there's resources available, but at what point do we say, 
this is no longer a resource, this is a requirement. And um, what do you think it would take for us to get to that point? I mean, our, I think we're at that boiling point in society to, to make that shift, but in our institutions, where do we say it's like, we're not using the that R word, we're using requirement now, the other R word. Absolutely, and it, the weird part is it, it, it's gonna vary institution to institution, but it doesn't take, it, it takes a concerted group of folk. It doesn't, you know, it, it, and, and that's one thing that gives me a lot of, I, I, I really, enjoy seeing how changing institutions of higher ed is not the same thing as governance. And sometimes people think that it is. Like that it, I need, you know, I need 50.1% of people to buy into this. It's like, no, you know what? Where, who are the power brokers within your institutions? Usually, usually the president or the chancellor is more of a figurehead the uh, you know a chief who is a chief um, or a leader who who does a lot of fundraising is a figurehead um, but isn't really into the day-to-day -day operations in many respects looking at the power dynamics of an institution it's it's primarily within the provost and the deans and if you can leverage those areas to really be pushing that's where that's it doesn't again it, it I mean how many deans are at any given institution um, you know, and there's usually just one provost. If you can get these people on board with some of these structural changes, you can make some massive gains really quickly because you flip that on its head. And you, again, you make it a requirement, but you have to keep agitating for it and saying, no, it's not enough to say, here are resources. You're saying, no, this is a requirement. And I like, I like that framing because it does, it, it makes it when it's sort of like, hey, you know, if you want to talk about social justice over here on the side, that'd be really nice, um, you know, for your dossier, for, you know, whatever. But at its core, if you start saying this is what we do, then it has to be embedded in the organizational structure. You know, that's what's so, you know, like I said, I'm sure that, that our Board of Regents is going to try to pull the rug out from underneath us with our diversity climate right now. But the way that we're doing it and structuring it, we actually say explicitly in our value statement that in the, you know, that the systemic inequalities are real, like that's just a baseline assumption, and it's our responsibilities as Wildcats to promote the most social equity that we can. I mean, that's right there in the value statement. And then as a result of it, students are required to take two diversity courses, and they're very clearly defined what is a diversity course and what isn't. Again, it's a requirement, not, hey, it'd be really nice if you took diversity or, you know, well, you know, if you can fit it into your STEM major, that'd be really nice. No, it's like, this is the crux of what we do. And, and I know that that's, I know for a lot of scholars of color, that's a difficult argument to make because in many respects, we're, we're advocating in a space where our love is unrequited. You know, we're trying to transform an institution that never cared about us in the first place. Mm. And, we're, and we're trying to say that, you know, we're trying to say that these are core values that we should be embodying um, as, you know, and, and having sort of an institutional pride around that. And that can be really difficult because you're like, I don't, you know, look at how poorly they're treating us. And in some respects, it kind of goes back to what Deb Prez said, we're looking for a, a takeover, not a makeover.
Well, and I think what you're saying also applies to like any type of organization, right? So I can think of this in corporate business, in PK-12 schools, in nonprofits. You know, I've been, it's amazing, like in the last month and a half, and I'm sure you're getting this too, like calls out to come and talk with people, right? Like, <laughs> so I've been doing like these one hour sessions with groups. And that, that's what I keep saying is like, what is your mission? And are you really embedding this in your mission? Are you decolonizing? I'll use I think that's Tuck and Yang's kind of framework, right, on social justice. We have to decolonize our thought process on what we're trying to accomplish and think about how social justice is actually embedded in what we're doing and not just an add-on, right? So I think that's the same in any organization, and I get a lot of flack sometimes uh, for focusing on mission, but if it's not embedded in the mission, if it's not embedded in the framework of what you're trying to accomplish, then it's really easy to move away from it. Because then yep. not everyone can agree or, or point back to something, right? So I think that that's, that's important. But, yeah, I think in any organization this is super relevant and, and, and helpful to think about it that way. Of course. And, and, and it's, it's a weird situation because the very, the very organizational structures that, that have marginalized us, we're trying to leverage them to benefit our communities. And that, right. that's, a very, that's a really, really difficult thing. And I, I understand the inclination that a lot of my – a lot of critically oriented colleagues of mine, particularly colleagues of color, where they're just, they basically are, they're like, well, to use kind of a, a, a simple analogy that, you know, we've, we've Charlie Brown with the football one too many times with Lucy. Like, you know, we've, you know, and, and then to borrow from the who, we're not going to be fooled again. So um, not to mix too many metaphors altogether. No, those are great. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll continue with our interview with Dr. Nolan Brown. Normally on the Whiteness in America podcast, we like to take the time in the middle of episodes to acknowledge or promote events or organizations that are in line with our mission, that also promote similar things that we do that challenge and disrupt and dismantle whiteness. However, today we're going to plug our own podcast uh, and let you know about an exciting endeavor that Josh and I are going to start moving on. In addition to our normal length episodes like this one you're listening to right now, it is our plan to begin also recording from time to time minisodes or mini episodes. For example, we'll have one coming out very shortly uh, this week. And generally these minisodes will be because something happened we weren't able to fit into the podcast itself. So for example, we recorded this particular episode on the afternoon of July 3rd. And um, later on that day, the President of the United States made an address at Mount Rushmore and said some pretty inflammatory things, and then continued to say those things on his July 4th address on Saturday. So we decided instead of going back and recording and adding it to this episode, making it longer, we're going to do another episode, but make it shorter. So we'll probably be a 15 to 20 minute discussion about this particular topic. And from now on, when things like this come up and if we're in between recording or we're not able to put it into a full length episode, we're going to give our listeners minisodes. So stay on the lookout for our mini episodes that will be coming out from time to time. If you have ideas or thoughts, please let us know. We're going to look for ways to engage folks too on these episodes. Uh, and so that way we're getting a more real time kind of response for everybody. That way you're not having to wait um, while we refine and work with interviews and setting those things up for talking about content that's super important and related to what we're trying to do. 
without further ado, back to our episode and our interview with Dr. Morgan about some of this you know this work that's needed in in really deconstructing and decolonizing these institutions i've talked to a lot of scholars of color and they say you know some will say this is very important work we need to put our foot on the gas pedal and let's do it and then some are like i'm done doing that work white folks need to start doing that work Uh at what point do we jump in and jump out of some of these major, what I think are components in order to deconstruct these systems? And how do we know when it's our time to step in and take a step back? Well, that, God, that's a tough one. Um, because I, I've been, I've been writing that for a couple of years now and just, you know, now's the time and now's the time, now's the time. Um, and it, it's been particularly, uh, important in the context of the University of Arizona because we've been going through a, a massive change in leadership and not and I don't just mean the, that the president got swapped out but a lot of uh, um, a lot of the uh, uh, central administration leadership positions um, there was a lot of turnover and then a lot of structural change all at the same time and so with all of this all these changes of the sort of like the time is now the time is now the time is now the time is now and and it, 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 I had this weird moment really, really strange moment when after, it was maybe the second or third week where we'd been sent home and COVID and everything like that. And I was like, I didn't realize how exhausted I was. I did, it was because it just becomes so normalized that, you know, you know, I mean, I'm giving like, you know, 15, 20 presentations a year throughout just on campus this isn't my usual you know speaking out in the you know different trainings different stuff like that you know uh and i was like god lord no wonder i'm so stinking tired three if they're on your campus too right that's exactly it but then <laughs> yeah that compensates you when, when you're doing that um and i was like wow i am really 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 tired and and, and it was at exactly that moment though that um uh and I wasn't, I was insufficiently self-reflective about where I was at. And that, that, that can be really dangerous um, doing this work because you just burn yourself out really quickly. But then at the same time, it was you know when you have kind of those serendipitous moments where you're just like, just, you just happen to be going through a Twitter feed and it's like the message just came up right there. And it was that one where some, I, I, again, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, bear with me, but um their their singing instructor said, you know, how is it that these choirs can hold notes for so long? They said, well, it's really simple. You know, these folks are holding that note and that allows this folks to catch their breath. Then they start singing the note, which then gives these folks to take a breath. And I wasn't giving myself the grace to take a breath. And that, and, and that because it felt very self-indulgent. You know, there's kids in cages were on the border, everything's in crisis, you know, folks are being deported, there's police brutality, you know, we had our own version of George Floyd with a uh, uh, guy with mental illness, Latino guy with mental illness here, there's COVID, and all this stuff is going on. 
and I forgot to give myself the grace to actually take a step back and take care of myself. And in a weird way, one of the big things that I've been doing intentionally has been um, just napping, just giving myself the grace to say, it's okay, it's okay to take a nap. I know that sounds basic, but I feel so much better in the, in the process. Um, and so I don't think that there's a good formula for it, but I think it's more of a process. And I, so I think that the big, one of the biggest checks, especially for folk of color and people of marginalized identities in the, doing this kind of work, is intentionally taking the time to just self-reflect, to check in, how am I doing it? Um, it has driven me nuts that some folks in progressive communities have taken, you know, sort of like mindfulness and breathing and things like that to say, oh, this is our pathway to social justice. And I'm like, I don't think so. We need to organize and agitate. But I think it's a really important component to being healthy while doing this work and also identifying the times when we're not healthy and pushing ourselves too hard. Because I don't know many people who don't agitate strongly like this, that it's more the burnout that I really, that, that I see as more of the, the big issue in, the, in, in, in this space. And that does require a certain amount of mindfulness to really check in, um, you know, check in with each other, check in with ourselves. I think that's why, you know, identifying the co-conspirators or, you know, your accomplices or however you want to frame that is super important in the work, whether it's in your, your institution or your local group or your fan, like your friends and family and your, like whatever your, your group is that you're trying to agitate and change. It's, you have, I think that metaphor about the, the singing is a great thing. I mean, we're all into music. We'll talk about this in a few minutes with your, your mixtape, but like, you know, Josh is a trumpeter, right? So he, he understands I'm, I'm not a real musician. I'm just a drummer. Um, but like I appreciate good music and, and things like that, but like you got to have breaks and, and to be able to take that time. And as you know, and, and as a white person, like I feel like I'm trying to navigate how not to take up space when I don't need to. And again, make it self-indulgent about me, but also be that person that I can be tapped in and tagged in and be that agitation. Why my friends and colleagues need a break, right? And I think that, that that sometimes is happening more so now because everything is so taxing and exhausting. And so, yeah, I really appreciated that. Um, I wanted to pivot a little bit, if we could, to talk about your new website. Um, I had a chance to check it out uh, last week when you uh, sent it out there into the world, I think maybe two weeks ago, and you've written a couple blogs. You want to talk about why you started it and what the framing is for it? I really love the explanation of uh, Chicano stocracy, right? Is that... Um, and you kind of gave an explanation of that in the first blog, and I thought that was really good. If you want to highlight a little bit about why you named it that, and and talk a little bit about that for folks. Sure. Uh, so thanks for engaging the work, and and that's this has been kind of a labor of love, and that um, I think in some respects what I've been trying to figure out is how to get some ideas out into just out for public consumption um, faster than, you know, like I, I'm, I've been too locked into um, uh, academic publishing. Or not, not, too locked in is probably too strong a word, but you know, I think that there are certain ideas that could get, you know, really quick treatments of, you know, 500 words and just throw something out there, um, you know, trying to sort of uh, more intentionally democratize the, the, this, this different kind of knowledge where, you know, I'm painfully aware that a lot of the, uh, you know, peer-reviewed scholarly pieces where, again, talking about institutional um, 
uh, institutional power that, and institutional um, uh, uh, like, like what are my requirements as a, as a professor that really, I mean, my academic currency is in peer review, uh, uh, peer review articles. Like that's, you know, that's really where it's at. That's where, and so this is me trying to engage wider audiences uh, with the work. Um, you know, and it also, it allows me to write with a bit of a twinkle in my eye a little bit. Like, you know, I, I, I had these, you know, different conversations. Like, when I'm writing, I always know, I, I can always tell when my homies are going to clown me about something. You know, like, like, like I, I put together a list of, <laughs> of, of uh, you know, anti-racist resources, you know, and how to use them appropriately. Um, you know, and, and, you know, and so I put my own book in there and then I can all, I already hear them and I've already had my phone blown up and they're like oh you think you're so good and you think you're this and I did and notice then, you put your book in your list of resources which was totally appropriate by the way I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna back you up on that your book is a great resource for this I, I appreciate that a lot um and, but then like like I know that I'm in a minority of opinions here but I really really like uh the 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 uh, Spike Lee movie Bamboozle I thought it actually had some really important racial commentary to it and my folks are like, oh my God, they give me so much grief about that constantly. They're like, are you serious? I'm like, yes, I'm serious. Like, give me a break. And so I get to have these kind of playful conversations that I know already exist um, in, in the blog space. So like, like the, 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 the next one that I wanna, the, 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 that I wanna write um, is, um, it, 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 I haven't fully formed it yet but it, it's going to be something about how to avoid a sharp argument. And my friends are like, what the hell is a sharp argument? And it's so like everybody and their mother will say, you know, what was the greatest sitcom of all time? You know, and they'll say like, well, it's either Friends or Seinfeld or Cheers. What's the greatest movie of all time? Oh, it's, you know, Citizen Kane or Casablanca or... Uh, or uh, uh, Chinatown had the greatest script, but you know, I, I mean, you, you get the idea. Everybody has that, you know, the greatest of all time. Well, all too often our conceptions of greatness are tied up in whiteness. And so if you have, if, you're, if, you're, if, if your conception of greatness is tied up into whiteness, you have a great white or a sharp argument. And that's trying to avoid the sharp argument. Oh, I it, love but, that. I love that. That's so awesome. <laughs> it's so it's, but that would never, that would never go through a peer review process. But it could still, it's it's fun turning a phrase. There is a seriousness to it because when it comes to award season, Oscar so white is important because materially that's what continually gets produced, right? So it's a serious subject, but I get to kind of play with it, and that that was really what was. Um, under the idea of Chicanocracy, and that comes back to the underlying concept, which nobody understands, and I should have thought more about it 12 years ago when I registered the domain name and didn't do anything with it. But the idea that the evolution, and it's a very personal concept, was that it's an acknowledgement of social position. Like I, I, I'm, you know, I have a relatively elevated social position, and for a when I was younger, I thought that that, like I love WB Du Bois as the talented 10th. It made sense to me when I was 19. But as many a mentor said, you probably should have kept reading a little bit to see why that idea failed. You know, that 
the, the talented 10th of the black community, and he was specific about black men, were going to be the basically the pathway to racial liberation. Um, and obviously that didn't come to fruition and he had to modify his approach. But there is something to be said for that there are folks in relatively elevated social positions of marginalized statuses. And, but then what does that mean in terms of our collective social responsibility? And that for me is the real core issue. And that also solidified when I was about 20, 21, 22 years old, because I'm sitting here in a, in a, in a shanty town on the outskirts of Tijuana. And, you know, what, I'm not going to call him out by name, but one of my dear classmates at Stanford is there. And, you know, like, this is an outrage that people have to live like this and be under constant threat and pressure and all this stuff. I'm going to, and the folks at the, in the community were like, what? you're not going to do squat. We're self-sufficient here. We don't need you. But you have a responsibility to remember our story as you're going through your life, that we're real people and our material reality stems from the policies in many respects. This was right after NAFTA and you had all these all this, uh, I mean, basically institutionalized poverty in, in Mexico that stemmed from uh, U.S. basically seeing a cheap source of labor. Um, and they said, think about, think about what this, what's happened on this trip. Like we had, we didn't have an appointment and we walked into the, uh, uh, we walked into the Department of Economic Development for the state of Baja and the head honcho heard Stanford students are in my waiting room. He dropped everything. He was in a meeting and dropped everything to come out and be like, oh, we have potential investors here. We have this, we have that. Forgetting that, you know, we're, you know, these semi-leftist, you know, <laughs> mostly brown kids from Stanford who are broke as a joke. But the point being like, the folks in the community never had that kind of access the spheres of power. And they said, you don't, we want, you know, when you can do the work with us directly, that's beautiful. However, <clears throat> just keep us, keep us in your heart and your head as you're moving through these spaces. Don't allow us to continue to be invisible and as, always consider the impacts of social policies as you're going through this work. And so that's sort of the dual focus there, you know, trying to keep a, a connection to grassroots communities, but understanding that I have access that a lot of folks, I have access to different spheres of power that a lot of people don't. And instead of shying away from that, I need, I have a responsibility to embrace it and say, what's a socially responsible mechanism of going in this way? It's, it, it's sort of, it's sort of analogous in the whiteness spheres of people cannot get away from their white privilege but you can leverage it in appropriate ways that can actually support racial justice. And I see that sort of as an analogy. And so no one understands what Chicanocracy is and everybody and their mother has an opinion. <laughs> and so I said, first blog post, this is what it is. And they read it and they still don't get it. And it's okay. And no one, and that, that's fine. I know that it's not the um, best term. I'm not exactly a great marketer. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's that that's sort of the the the, the lineage uh, of it and how I've been uh, really trying to use it as a platform to get some stuff out there. What I what I'm really excited about though is the possibility of 
once I get the blog off the ground a little bit more, is then bringing in other folks to to to, to provide content and, and really round it out. So it's not just me pushing everything out there. But that's I mean that's the long term plan. I, I I barely know how to manipulate the manipulate everything on it. I'm still trying to figure everything out. Well. Honestly, you know, when I read that, I thought I thought it's really beautiful because it's it's your story, it's your understanding, it's your journey and your experience, and I think that's what's so um, both challenging and amazing about all the work that we that you do, and I think that is done. And in, in this is that, and that folks have to understand is like there's complexity to us as human beings. Our makeup and what we see and how we interpret and interact with the world is complex, and so your understanding of of uh, of, of your experience in Chicanocracy as a term, um, as a framework for that, is your own thing, right? And that's that's you. That's that. And and I think that's that's the, that's what was so great for me as I read that. I was like, oh, I I don't quite understand, but I understand a little bit of what I think he's trying to say. And this is his lived experience. So I think that's really cool. And and you know, as you build your platform for this, if um, you know. I've always been kind of like on the lookout for folks that we can partner with. If there's things that we can share that you're doing, uh, um, please don't hesitate to reach out. We're, you know, all 10 of our podcast listeners will probably uh, head on over to your site as soon as they're done finishing this episode and, and, and <laughs> we can support you in your work. So, um, but yeah, no, I think that's great. Um, and I really enjoyed your resources. Actually, um, I ended up putting those up um, and sending them out to our, our student teachers and the folks mm. that we have out in our field, because I was like, we keep getting questions about how they can continue to do anti-racist based work. And I was like, you, you got to first understand what you're trying to do and accomplish. And so um, I thought it was a good list of, of um, support mechanisms and stuff. So yeah, Wonderful. so thank you for and, that. Absolutely. And as a, as a quick one, and I, I probably need to highlight this one a little bit more. I actually have an extended commentary that will be coming forward on it. The Flowbot song, Pray, is, just, it, 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 I don't know if y'all have had a chance to, to, to listen to it, but if you can watch it on YouTube, it's intense. The iconography that they use, because they basically go through 400 years of, of racial oppression in the span of a four-minute song and, and, and talking about, about racism, whiteness, resistance. It, it, it's, it, is, um, it comes quickly, and it's one of those that requires um, multiple viewings and multiple conversations around it. And that's also why I wrote the extended commentary because my students were like, oh dude, uh, we, we need time to, like, it, it just it hits you on a visceral level, but then the content is really, really, really dense. Um, it, uh, it, and so I would highly, if I, could, if I could give one really big shout out, it'd be to that, to that song, because it, get, it gets, um, and also the flowbots are just awesome in and of themselves, but that's a different issue altogether. Um, Josh, did you play trumpet on that song? Um, not that song, but I tour. I tour with the flowbots, and they're close friends of mine. Oh, sure. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll make sure. Yeah. So uh, Jamie, well, all of them. They're we've known each other for a decade. <laughs> so we actually were. We did their last tour. Uh, my band was on tour with them, and I played trumpet with with their with their band often. So. And in fact, Jamie from the Flowbots just lives like five minutes from me here in Denver. So I'll, I'll let him know that you said that. Okay. No, I mean, I have, I have, <laughs> no, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, that one, there's just something 
I, I know I keep saying I, I want to have more accessible work. Unfortunately, my response to that is something like 4,500 words. It's just, it's <laughs> but it's such a beautiful, dense, and I don't mean dense as in, I, I mean dense as in there's a lot of, of thoughts and content and history, but then you throw that, that um, God, I should have known who I was talking to. Was embarrassing. I'm like, oh yeah, I kind of. Played. Oh no, I didn't mean to embarrass. No, 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 no. That's not why I said that. I just, I was trying to draw the connection. No, no, that's that's that, that's beautiful. No, no. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, but that that the 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 music video for that one, holy crap, you know, and 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 the way that they talk about you know whiteness as this oppressive, empty social construction, and how it it. It, it it create it makes us see our neighbors as as less than and not human and oh my god is it like like I, there are two songs that I have on the on the list one is Akala's uh, fire in the booth that one's easier to get through because it's it's him I mean it's his personal journey it's actually it very much mirrors my in, in terms of style and content. Uh, you know, my journey through Chicanocracy, you know, and so you have, you know, here's an intellectual piece, here's a personal piece, here's something that happened. And so my students always gravitate towards Akala because it, there's that personal narrative around it. But man, praise a great song. That's a really, <laughs> it's a really, really, really good song. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't speak highly enough of it. Like I said, I have the, um, my extended commentary on it that I'm, I'm going to put up on the blog and no one's going to read it, but you know, that's awesome. <laughs> no, I'll make sure they read it. <laughs> I'll pass it along to them. They'll love that. That's great. I appreciate that. I, uh, yeah. I appreciate that. So did, were, were you on tour when the last time they came through Tucson a couple of years back? I've been trying to think. I can't remember. It all is kind of a blur, but it was the circle in the square at record that they put out that, our band wheelchair sports camp we were on a 22 day through with them and i think they they had that song but it wasn't recorded yet but they were performing it yeah and um it's it's just i mean that was before the video and just just the song alone was like a lot <laughs> and yeah just mind-blowing yeah absolutely and then we, i mean it, it, the second verse comes in and burr rabbit's like by the way hip-hop is transphobic I'm like where the hell did that come from like but that's an important consideration and it's weird because you're using you're leveraging that art form to make these points but then also being self-critical in the process which you don't that's that self-reflection that you don't see uh happen very often it was so oh god it, yeah it, it, it was <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of, it's a beautiful thing man it's it, it, are, do you know if they're, if they're going to be doing another album coming out soon or is this I don't yeah know. Well, they've been um, they've been getting together. I just I know this because I chat with them a lot. But they've been getting together in like groups of three or four. I mean, COVID's kind of tough. It's but um, but they've been getting together, writing some new material. Um, so Stefan, well, um, bracket the um, he's now. So they started an organization called Youth on Record here. I don't know if you've looked into too much of the Flowbots. Yeah, barely. Yeah, and so they started a an organization here to support social justice and music together as like a single component to implement in schools across Denver. And uh, basically, 
finding ways for students to learn about music and social justice at the same time. And so they've been putting a lot of time into that during COVID and finding ways to create curriculum to, as you're saying, like the, the basically the premise at the beginning of this conversation is how do we make this central than just a boutique component? And so that's what's so cool. I'm so glad you brought up the Flowbots because they are one of those groups of people that um, are, they're doing that work, um, even though like we see them as these amazing musicians and, and, you know, lyricists, but they are also on the front lines of doing some really great abolishment and reform work of the way we learn in school. So yeah, those guys are just fantastic, <laughs> fantastic people. That's, it's funny you say that about the grassroots work because, not funny, but that was the common thread between them and Akala because Akala has the one, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, but, um, but the, um, because uh, he has the the hip hop or Shakespeare, where you know, and that's his hook with the with the kids, and it's the same thing that that you know, trying to do really meaningful, authentic engagement on a grassroots level, um, you know, and, and you're right, there there are you know, there are so few artists who actually do that, you know, you, you have way too many kind of well intentioned but patronizing bonos. And not enough of the folks who are like, oh, really? yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he 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 puts a lot of money out there, but God bless it. Like, come on, dude. Like, yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. I don't want to blow that up. But the point being that, um, you know, there are so there are so many who, you know, like social justice has become kind of a cute term. Oh yeah, you know, I'm down for the people, and especially now in a time of Black Lives Matter, that. Um, that, that, that it's almost kind of the end vogue thing to say, you know, but where's the, where's the tangible meaningful support, you know, like where are you doing the, the real, where the rubber hits the road uh, uh, work, you know, and, and not just capitalizing on social justice as a mechanism to make yourself more popular in progressive circles, but to really give back. And that's, again, like what I really respect about, about some of these artists is that they're so, Another another one would be like also Motley. God dang it, they're always. They're, I mean, always they're amazing, and they're yes. always. You know, yeah. they, I, I remember I got to I, I had the amazing pleasure, and again this is this is this actually kind of gets back to Chicano Stockercy. I mean, you know these cats they were you know they were the band for when Fluffy Guy had his own show, oh, uh, yeah. Comedy Control. You know, yeah. these guys. So they they've toured. I think that they toured. It was like both Mana and Santana or something. I mean, they were like, I mean, these are, um, you know. Yeah. And, and but then like back in the mid two thousands, uh, there was the the community garden South Central Farm, and you know this beautiful beautiful. I mean, the the community came and broke through the concrete and made a garden in the middle of an industrial district, and then all of a sudden. Uh, the developers like, okay, now I'm going to sell it. And these folks are like, no, this is our community garden. They came, they and Zaki La Rocha came and played a benefit concert in the middle of the night, you know, and all proceeds went to the South Central Farm, you know, and it's one of those things like when, and they did the same benefit concert or a similar benefit concert for us in Tucson when there was the banning of Mexican-American studies, uh -huh. you know, and that's what I'm is that like, I love pumping up folk like that for the exact reason that yep. that love commitment is so few and far between. And, mm -hmm. and whenever, 
whenever I can shout out dope artists who are also really doing the work, I want to take yeah. advantage of the Absolutely. And I really loved, like, so kind of like looking at your mixtape that you put together to support uh, the book White Guys. I don't have the full title in front of me. I'm so sorry. I think it's, uh, I had it up and then I lost it. But White Guys on Campus, the short, the shortened title that you wrote in 2018, um, you know, like you were really, you, you, as you said the other day, they're like Easter eggs, yeah. if you will, like throughout the book where you kind of were inspired. Like for me, I was really heavy handed. I wrote my dissertation. I like literally quoted things um, like from Rage Against the Machine and other things because I just I didn't have that when I was I didn't have the thought process to put a mixtape behind a, a document. But like. For me, music is important, and I like to find ways to weave it in because, it, one, as a writer, it makes it more interesting to me. But also, I think for someone that's trying to make meaning out of the work, I want them to know what inspired that. Was that kind of your thought process behind putting the mixtape together, or what were your thoughts on that? <laughs> so it, it, it's kind of all of the above. That um, First of all, if an, if an artist says something in uh, more in a more succinct and clearer way than I did, well then just give them the shout out and say like, look, this is, you know, I'm basically saying conceptually the same thing that a mortal technique did, but he's doing it in a much better way than I did. So here's the, you know, here's what he said or, you know, but then at the same time, like you said, initially, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just be really blunt. Initially, it was very much a self-centered, Thing that I was doing because I was just writing fat. The, the, white, I put together the entire first draft of White Guys on Campus. Like I, I threw out everything that I'd written before and just said, okay, I'm still working with this data set, but I'm going to start all the way from square one. Wrote the whole thing in about three and a half months. And so I'm going at this torrid, torrid pace. And sometimes I just needed something different. I just needed something, you know, and I was keeping myself entertained in the process. And I didn't quite care if people found it engaging or entertaining. I didn't quite have uh, an audience there. I just was like, hey, you know what would be fun right now is if I can quote the Ghetto Boys. Like, that would be awesome, because it's the same, you know. And uh, and I think that, though, what, what ended up happening, though, was that, <coughs> and I, I also uh, gave myself a little bit more uh, license to, to write again with that little kind of twinkle in my eye. So, you know, me say 2012, 13, and 14, I'd be deeply involved in these conversations analytically about, well, what's, uh, you know, what's the proper term for a white person who does anti-racist work? Is it an ally, a co-conspirator, you know, and diving into the philosophical tenets of each and what it means in terms of actual action and you know, doing all this stuff. And I kind of got tired of that conversation. And so then I gave myself license in the book to say stuff like, what do you call him? And I said, well, why don't you just call him Steve or whatever his name is? Like, I, I'm not as concerned about the specific term. Semantics do matter. But sometimes in progressive circles, we'll get too focused on the exact meaning of a word. And it's, it's a balance because semantics and language matter very much. But it shouldn't come at the expense of the actual action. It should be a complementary component. 
And sometimes the language becomes kind of low-hanging fruit that people can gravitate towards and make arguments about. And, 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 but again, it, 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 initially it gave me, uh, I was giving myself latitude to actually make myself laugh during the, during the court, you know, and that's not healthy. If you're sitting here writing and you're like, oh, <laughs> I'm by myself, this is not an appropriate thing to be doing. But what I found was that in some respects, in a very, very, very difficult racial conversation, that some folks really appreciated it as a way of um, kind of disrupt it, like, like, like basically making it manageable. Because if it, if it just was, and this sucks racially, and this sucks racially, and this sucks racially, and this sucks racially, it almost becomes too much. And, it, and it can, this can kind of provide, you know, a little bit of a, 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 a minor break, you know, and, and, and I tried to, just for my own sanity in it, I tried to kind of vacillate between the, the just sort of the straight analytical. I really wanted to incorporate things that were beautiful as well, which is why I quote James Baldwin at length, probably too much. Um, and then something that was just sort of entertaining or funny or, you know, things, things like that, you know, um, you know, if, if you think that uh, if you think that racial justice work is going to be easy, well, then with regards to George Strait, I've got some oceanfront property in Arizona. I mean, you know, I thought that was an interesting ad of George Strait, by the way. I was like, oh, that's different. <laughs> of course, it's different. But that's, yeah, it's that's, different. yeah, it's like hip hop, hip hop, hip hop, hip hop. Howard's in George Strait. And I'm also from Oregon, so you know, <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. That's funny. Uh, well, I, I think we should probably. I don't want to take up much more of your time. Uh, Josh, I think you had one more question. Yeah, no, I, I've just been enjoying this conversation, and me too. I'm, I'm getting selfish now, where I don't really care about the listeners. I'm like, I'm more focused on us three right now. Um, <laughs> I just like this. Um, Why do you think I started no, I was, this in the first place? It was really just yeah, a self exploration to talk with really cool people. I love it. Now I was gonna say, now as as we close, you know, what are your what are your hopes for the coming year? You know, as we think through um, our current political climate, COVID, and and really just like the future of our of our country. You know, what are what are some of your final thoughts with your hopes as we move into the, you know the end of this year because we're at the midpoint as of yesterday. Yeah. Oh, geez. <laughs> My hopes, oh my goodness, that, that is, that's a tough one. Um, okay, so I, just to start off, I, 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 and this is very, very basic, there, I don't see Biden as a transformational leader by any stretch of the imagination, but God damn it, I'm gonna vote for him. And I don't, I don't like him, I don't like his history, I don't like his legislative record, I don't, but I will, I will, because the existential threat, not just to racial justice, but to our existence as people, posed by this narcissistic man-child who, you know, just goes off of the cuff. And like, I mean, I, I love the way that Hari Kondabolo said it in, uh, he has a pinned tweet where he's like, look, we, we, we got, we elected the black guy. Now, does that mean we all have to die? Like, and I don't mean to be so reductive about it, 
and I, and I'm really I'm really 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 concerned about that election again not it, it, just because it's going to be so important just to take some of the pressure off on that just to get some of that weight off so that we can breathe for a second um because four more years of this i i i don't i don't want to sound alarmist but i honestly don't see how we both as a civilization as well as just as as a uh, as people in the world survive four more years of this i i really i i, I really don't i don't know. um and, you know and so i and 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 I, I get the inclination from a lot of my really, especially my really leftist friends who are like, you know, I'm not going to vote, I'm going to do this. And I'm like, even like, even someone like Noam Chomsky has said that the existential threat posed by, posed by Trump warrants getting into the electoral politics. And I like the, and I, I'm sorry I'm forgetting the person's name, but someone wrote a really interesting um, op-ed about how the, the tension, because what's going to have to happen is, we have to elect Biden and then hold him accountable and push because what you know there was there was and that's a lot to ask because people are so exhausted right now. But if we need you know if we learned anything from uh, uh, from the Obama administration, there was kind of like this. Okay, there's no more George W. Bush. There's no more this, and it was almost like we thought of him as like Black Jesus. Like you know, he, he, well Jesus was black. Never mind. Um, the, the, I, I digress. Why would I say that? Come on now, you're better than that. Um, you know, but there, it, like people were almost seeing him as like the Messiah. And when in fact, you know, if we had been more intentional about really pushing him hard in the beginning, that I think that his legislative agenda would have looked a lot, a lot different and a lot and a lot better. But he, where was he feeling the pressure? On day one. Literally on day one, you had Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity. You had everyone on the the big names on the right saying, "Don't you dare turn this into a socialist country!" Don't you, you know? And folks were like, "Oh, he's not gonna. He he he's better than that." Well, no, he kept cowering to them and trying to say, "No, don't think of me as a socialist. Don't think of me as this. Don't don't think of me as an open borders liberal." So he ends up deporting more people, uh, you know, more brown people than any other president in history. I mean. The, I get that he was faced with a really, really difficult uh, legislative agenda, especially with the Republican-controlled House and and and, uh, and Senate. But I also think that that folks kind of let the gas off. And, and again, it was the same thing. We were so tired from 9/11, Iraq invasion, Afghanistan invasion, the Supreme Court, affirmative action ban. I mean, it was just everywhere that you know 2009 hits. And people were like, okay. But we let the we let the pressure off of the gas, and everything just spiraled backwards. So I think though that the big thing right now for me is that with this time, one of the biggest things that happened with the Trump administration, and I don't I don't say that this is that this is worth it, but in terms of racial justice, it really took off the veil. Like if we go back to the mid '90s. And you had, I mean, Eduardo Bunia Silva's book on colorblind racism was so powerful because so much of the racism, it was just percolating, just beneath the surface. But people would say, look, as long as they're not calling you the N-word, as long as they're not being overtly racist, it's not really there. We're not really, it's not really that big of a deal, you know. And, and, and oh, God, being in, being in like Portland adjacent in the mid-90s 
and how much political correctness. Oh my God, white folks in Portland would, would just dance around. Like, don't think of me as racist. Don't think of me as racist. All the while they're gentrifying, you know, Northwest Portland and all this stuff, you know, and you're just kind of like, good Lord. I think it's taken off the veil and said, no, like these are really ingrained issues. These are really deeply, uh, you know, and, 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 and we have to think very, we have to really reformulate. And I think uh, about how we think about issues of race and how we address issues of race. And I think it, in a weird way, it's been a really big eye-opening experience for white people in particular, because for folk of color, we're kind of like, yeah, police brutality is a thing. Didn't know that, like, you know, um, you know, and, well, and I know this that, is water. You're in it. You've been in it for the whole time. It, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, I really appreciated the way that Aziz Ansari broke it down where he said there's very few things that are more um, taxing and exhausting than a recently woke white person. But just remember that, you know, that, that racism didn't become a thing because white people discovered it, you know, that. Um, but with that actually has fostered some really good intentions, albeit misdirected. But I haven't felt this kind of energy behind racial justice in a really long time. Angela Davis was on the Democracy Now! Um, this morning talking about that this, this really does feel like a tipping point. You know, we've been agitating for so long and it feels like folks have just had it, you know. And, and, and you see that, uh, I mean, Black Lives Matter protesters have shown, you know, like, look, it, uh, there's been some really substantive and important um, victories, whether it's actually, you know, cutting police budgets, getting chokeholds banned, um, uh, eliminating, uh, uh, making illegal use those um, uh, uh, pepper spray, or not pepper spray, but um, uh, uh, tear gas uh, canisters. There's been just a lot of things that have, that that, that um, productive things that have come off of that. And there, you know, to borrow from Bush, that we're seeing more clearly the cracks in the walls of whiteness, and there is no because of the incomplete nature of the human condition, there is no such thing as perfectly formed oppressive structures. There are always opportunities for, uh, uh, to disrupt, to dismantle. And I think that's why I love uh, thinking back on Paulo Freire where he talked about that hope is an ontological need, that everything we do here centers around hope and to borrow that from Cornell West that that's not the same thing as saying we're optimistic it's saying that because of our incomplete nature that there's always the possibility that things can get better but we're not sitting here surveying the evidence saying that they will get better that's an optimist and a pessimist but hope runs eternal and so then the challenge to us becomes always maintaining a prison uh, always being a prisoner of hope and maintaining that and if we can't see where there is possibility, because possibility runs eternal, then it means either A, we like the creative imagination to do it, or B, we like the will to do it. But fundamentally, that's my baseline assumption, is that hope is always there. The improvement of the human condition is always present because of our incomplete nature and also because of the way that hope functions in social progress. That's super powerful. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Yes, ben. thank you so much. Huge honor and privilege um, to sit and share space with you for the last hour plus, particularly on a day where 
um, it's, as you said, 104 degrees and super hot. So thank you for, for talking with us. Yes. Hey, I'm, I'm inside. I've got air conditioning going. <laughs> it's only 99 degrees right now, guys. Oh, it's oh, dry okay. heat, so you're fine. Oh, okay. You ain't one. No, it's a, a dry hate. A dry oh, hate. Dry hate, yes. yes. Yeah, there it is. Um, you know what else is a dry heat is a is a is an oven. So yeah, right. I yeah. Really so. <laughs> uh, well thank you. Appreciate y'all very much. that does it for this week's episode. We hope you really enjoyed uh, our interview with Dr. Nolan Cabrera. Uh, we'll, we have uh, links to his new website, chicanostocracy.com, on our website, as well as um, the mixtape that we were talking about that accompanies his book, White Guys on Campus. Um, Josh, what did you think about the interview today? Man, I, and I, you know, I said this in the interview, but I felt selfish in it because I just, I wanted to kind of just take this conversation and you know, just invite him over for, for, you know, some drinks at this, at this point, because he's, he has so much great and valuable information to share with us. And I just feel like I myself just, just want to continue the conversation. And I hope some of our listeners feel the same way that, you know, as we started to go through um, the conversation that they too felt um, a sense of, uh, of wanting to dig in more into not only his words, but his work. And I hope our listeners do, you know, after this show, go to his website and, and dig into some of the things that he's putting out right now. Yeah. And what an authentic human, right? Like he just is very real about what he's doing and shows Absolutely. his vulnerability in his writing and his work and the way he theorizes his uh, whiteness and white supremacy and his own lived experience. And so, um, you know, it's, he's a great example for folks that are getting into this work for the first time, folks that have been in this work for a long time and doing social justice work in general. So I really appreciated him coming on. As always, you can find us on uh, any of the platforms that have podcasts. You can go to our web website, whitenessinamerica.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter under the handle Disrupt Whiteness with one S after whiteness. Um, or you can email us at whitenessinamerica at gmail.com. That's it for me this week. Josh, do you have any final words for? No our... final thoughts, but I think, you know, what he said in, in the closing, I just want to reiterate too, is is the essence of hope. And I think, uh, you know, I think that uh, for me, that, that really gave me a, a great lift as we move into the second half of this year. And I hope our listeners feel that too. Yes, yes, that's a great point. All right, that's it for us. Have a great week. See you, everybody.